We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Well, good morning. Today is Wednesday, the 26th of April, and my name is Scott Shera, and I'm Grace's dad. Those of you who have been watching know that Grace was taken home prematurely to save others and to wake others up. But for me personally, it was to light a fire under my rear end and become a full-time advocate and wake up. And the waking up process I'm calling deprogramming, which is why the name of this program is Deprogramming with Grace's Dad. And you know, I don't know that anybody can be woken up completely as I have been learning. You know, if uh, the only person who knows what's going on is God and he's a 10, I would say I'm about a three right now at waking up. And uh, the man I have on as a guest today, he's more awake than me, but you know, he may, may be a, a six, but I, a few people that I would consider eights, but it's uh, it's because they've been uh, full-time recent years. So before I introduce the guest today, I usually try to make something about grace related to the guest. This one has nothing to do with the guest, but it is, it's really a neat uh, part of Grace's life that I've never shared on publicly before. And so I'm glad to share it today. And it came out of Grace's big brother, Travis, who took his life by suicide in 2018. He was a Star Wars fan and he could do Chewbacca impressions. So naturally, Grace wanted to follow in his footsteps. So Don, can you bring up the picture of me with Chewbacca? So this is <laughs> this is a couple of years ago. Um, and we got Grace this chewy mask and she just she just loved it. So let's I'll show you her in action now. This was the one I'm going to have Don bring in next is a clip where she was uh, celebrating my grandson Riley's eighth birthday. This is three months before she died in the hospital. So this is July of 2021. So go ahead, Don, you can play the clip. She wanted to do a chewy gram for you instead of a gorilla gram for you. So. Yeah. And I'll get a picture of you too. Stand by Chewy there. I gotta. Can you hold your balloon up? There you go. 
you know, this was, uh, it was a special time having her in our life for 19 years. She just always did things that were, were outside the box and creative and fun and everything. So I'm in the fight because of, uh, because of that little buddy of mine. So today my guest is Warner Mendenhall. Don, can you bring Warner in please? So Warner, obviously now you know why I, this one wasn't related to my guest. <laughs> Uh, I had uh, a guest a guest by the name of Priscilla on once, and Grace met Priscilla Presley. So I had the Priscilla Presley uh, artifacts and and meeting with Priscilla on, and to see if the audience could guess, but they would never guess you based on Chewy. So anyway, Warner has uh, become a friend. He's a nationally known attorney and the founder of the Mendenhall Law Group. I visited Warner in December as we put together the team for Grace's lawsuit. And Warner's team is behind the Brooke Jackson False Claims Act case against Pfizer. Uh, and his resume, of course, if I went through his resume, we wouldn't be able to do the show. So we're not going to do that. We're just going to utilize Warner's expertise and talk through some things. And I've called the title of today's show In Such a Time as This, A Top Attorney's Perspective. And I, you know, I could say the top attorney's perspective because that's how much respect I have for Warner. So let's jump in. I want to talk through a time such as this. And so, Don, were you able to put the Esther 414 scripture in something that you can put on the screen? I'm going to read it. All right. So I want to read this because this is a piece of the puzzle that my best friend had said, Scott, you know, as you're jumping into this, read this. And Esther 414 says, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for a time such as this. So Esther became the queen. She was a Jew. She really should have never been in that spot. And Mordecai was calling her out and saying, you know, you've got to do something. How do you know you weren't made for a time such as this? And when I saw that scripture reference, I realized, oh my gosh, this is exactly what is going on. I, you know, God made me for a time such as this, and I am all in. And Warner, in one of the conversations I had with him, he said, this is his Super Bowl. So Warner, I want you to just introduce yourself in that regard. Tell the audience what you've been doing and why this time is so big that it truly is a time such as this? Well, it's just, um, I, I, I want to actually go to what you had about your daughter because the uh, there is something going on that relates to what you had. Um, Tom Connors, one of my uh, office, uh, you know, one of my partners here is working with a man named Mark Boudreau. And Mark Boudreau, was uh, almost killed by hospital protocols. And he's currently in the hospital. He's been on a ventilator for uh, well over a year off and on. Uh, he, this guy is a fighter, uh, but Mark Boudreau, he designed the toy characters uh, for the Star Wars. Um, oh my gosh. Yes, so he's the main designer for all those toy characters. He's obviously an el fairly, uh, you know, up there in age a little bit here, but, uh, you know, he, he was part of the Star Wars uh, project, and it was the toys that were all packaged and sent out all over the country. So, wow. <laughs> I know. so wow. 
There's so many. Yeah, you're you're saying this has nothing to do uh, with uh, with the show, but it, it's you know we're working on that right now. We're trying to you know do what needs to be done legally to you know actually uh, you know we're we're looking at every option we can to get uh, more appropriate treatment for him because he is hanging on. He was on dialysis at one point, um, and uh, and that. Uh, and then they took him off dialysis thinking it was going to, it would end his life. Well, his kidney started functioning again. So, you know, Mark, Mark is in a very tough battle, uh, but he, you know, uh, God is keeping him alive. His family wants him to get home and they want him to have some better treatment. So it's been a very long battle, probably one of the longest ones I've heard of. Um, wow. But Anyway, uh, that that fight is going on as we speak. Uh, Tom Tom has just been the laboring oar on that and doing everything he can for this family. Um, but my I felt like I my life in a way um, you know it led me to this place, and and I had always fought against government and government overreach, and I reacted immediately. To the business shutdowns, and uh, and then when they actually said to people, "Don't get together with your families over Thanksgiving." Well, this way back in 2020, I was like, "This is absolutely horrendously wrong, uh, unconstitutional, and and violates everything that I know about how to live life." Um, and I, uh, I came out very uh, strongly in my local community opposed to. You know the lockdowns, the business shutdowns, and and certainly the uh, limitations on families and churchgoers uh, to getting together. Uh, I thought all of that was a excessive abuse of of you know government power at all levels. Um, and then we that same year, 2020, our our very first um, our very first case was actually a tavern. Uh, it was the Highland Tavern case, and. And that was, they wanted them to limit their hours and um, their license said they had, uh, you know, they could be open till 2 a.m. And the owner just refused. And it got him in obviously a lot of trouble. Uh, they stripped him of his liquor license uh, and basically destroyed his business. Uh, but we decided to take that case and we've been fighting it ever since. It is currently pending a waiting decision at the Ohio Supreme Court. So yeah, the very, the very first that's a, the very first case doesn't you know probably doesn't seem like a, a it's not a terribly big case but it becomes an important case because it, a bar um, just like many other businesses is a small business this was family owned family run and I, you know it employed um, I think about ten uh, waiters and waitresses and bartenders and cooks, you know, to, to run this small bar. And all of that, all of those people also have families. So the bar owners out uh, his income, all the people he employed are out their income, you know, because of these uh, of government overreach, basically, in my view. So we lost at the, at the local court, we lost at the appellate court. And I think many people know this, but Supreme courts don't have to take a case. And so we were like, well, we got to try one more court. And uh, we filed in, in Ohio, it's called a memorandum on jurisdiction, asking the Supreme Court to take the case and make a decision about this, in, you know, government overreach. And they decided to hear it. 
So that that we argued it in um, we argued it in January, and I think I have the audio of that argument on my covidlawcast.com uh, Substack page. So if, if people wanted to hear an argument about that, uh, it's there. But that administrative overreach is what many of us have experienced, um, you know, whether it's health departments, whether it's any, you know, whatever government agency, whether it's the president imposing a mandate uh, based on, you know, a vaccine mandate based on the procurement power of the government. Those are all kind of administrative actions uh, that are a huge increase in, in government power and violate what we all learned in you know elementary school that we're supposed to be a government at every level of limited powers. And whatever is not specifically enumerated and granted is not given to the government. It retain, we retain that as a people. So that's sort of my, uh, sort of a fundamental philosophy that we're, we have fought for for many years. And then this, this came up and honestly, Scott, the, the other thing about it was I, I didn't feel, uh, I, I didn't, I felt like I had to do something and it wasn't just that I had to, I literally felt no choice in the matter. So it's the most strange thing. I felt like, I'm here. I have these skills. I have to go. I have to use them. And you don't have a choice in this. It wasn't that I was called or anything else. I felt sort of just shoved into the fight. Uh, Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I have that exact same sense. I mean, it, what else would you do? I mean, you you realize that it is literally a time such as this. The you know, So that case, I, I didn't know about that case. I have a couple questions. So you lost at two levels, now the Supreme Court level, were, what were they using as the, what did the judge buy? What argument did he buy that you lost? I, you know, it seems so obvious, but what, so what were, what was the defendant's argument? Well, um, I, I mean, I can get into that. I'll try to get into this in a very simple way. Um, there are, there are kind of two ways to go about this. So when you're stripped of a liquor license, there's an administrative process that you can engage in. And the bar hired an attorney to do the administrative appeal. But the bar owner is a friend of mine and we were talking about it. And I said, look, you don't just have to do that administrative appeal. Uh, and there are some limitations to that. We need to do what's called a declaratory judgment. We need the court to declare not just for you, but for every bar in the state that this order was illegal to shut down at a time that was, you know, that was different than what you were licensed to operate. Because the bar owners have all fought for and applied for and done all jumped through all these hoops to get a license to operate. It is controlled by the government, but government can't arbitrarily change that license. And that's the issue that we uh, attacked okay. under declaratory judgment. We asked the court to declare that the uh, state of Ohio had exceeded its administrative power by just arbitrarily making up a new rule that had nothing to do with what the state legislature had granted in terms of power to the to the state administrative body uh, in terms of setting time. So I hope that's clear. It's, you know, what, what bugs me about this type of thing is it's so obvious, but yet now you're, 
you're going it's going to be three years before this man potentially gets justice and i see this this is the most frustrating thing to me about the legal system you know you and i have talked about there's three lanes that we can make change politically which you know that that's of course a complete waste of time uh legally which you know that's your lane and then the press which that's been my lane but you know the legal piece it seems like they they purposely operate outside of the rule box so like you said you you somewhat define the rule box by saying what we learned in elementary school you know the thing is you and I went to elementary school in the same <laughs> literal the same time period but I mean that is not what's taught in elementary school anymore and you know now they you know it's it's insane what's taught now but regardless of that the the rule box there always was difference between liberals and conservatives but nobody operated outside the rule box now they operate outside the rule box and then you've got to sue them and it's three years later you know i presume you're going to get justice in this case but that's even not a that's not a gimme you know and so this man now lost his business. If he gets justice, what does that even look like? That's rhetorical, but you you get the idea. It's a frustrating piece. And, um, you know, we're going to find out in short order, not just with that case, but with all these cases, is the how, how much is the judicial system actually been bought also? So, you know, the idea of... Um, I want to switch gears from that case to the, the Brooke Jackson case just for a minute, because... That is, when I read over the argument in the Brooke Jackson case, you know, I that was one of those things when I saw it, you can't unsee it because you see clearly this is, this was never a vaccine. But yet that case, what's the, you know, so that's, I think that's the biggest case out there. So can you explain the status of the case and what, um, what you think is going to happen with it? Yeah, just for your viewers, the Brooke Jackson case alleges that Pfizer, in developing these, uh, they're actually countermeasures, in developing these countermeasures uh, for the Department of Defense, basically faked the clinical trial data, that the clinical trial data has no uh, in, there's no information that's useful or, uh, in that clinical trial data because the clinical trials were so badly run. Um, you know, things, I, I don't need to get into too many specifics, but you know, when you unblind clinical trial participants, meaning you know whether they got the shot or not, uh, that destroys the integrity of that clinical trial. So Brooke Jackson alleged that it, it was unblind, this trial had been unblinded in many different ways. The other thing is they hired people uh, to work in the clinical trial who were not qualified. They also brought people into the clinical trial as cl trial participants who should never have been there. Uh, and then when they, they massaged the data to get it before the FDA, uh, and in massaging that data, we believe they eliminated huge segments of the 43,000 people in that clinical trial in order to make the shot look safe and effective. Additionally, on the safety side, uh, we have found a number of deaths and a number of uh, other incidents, many, many incidents uh, that were excluded and not presented to the FDA in terms of the safety data. And, you know, 
anybody can find uh, the infamous nine pages of adverse reactions. These are nine typed up pages of adverse reactions, just on and on and on, hundreds and hundreds of adverse reactions that Pfizer identified in this clinical trial. So, you know, th that's, you know, Brooke came in and then on top of that, and this is, this is also a very astounding fact. When Brooke tried to do the right thing and blew the whistle and contacted the FDA, our government, someone in our government apparently reached out uh, to Pfizer or the uh, clinical trial contractor, Ventavia, and had her fired within a matter of hours. So we really, I, 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 I this is something new, by the way, Scott, that I've never really seen in my career, but now I have seen it twice recently. Uh, once with uh, FDA and once with the Department of Energy, where someone in the federal government said, you have to get this person off your staff. They're a whistleblower. And then the company does what the government tells them to do. So that is a very bizarre. I've never had this happen in 25 years of representing whistleblowers. I've never had it happen in the last uh, couple of years. I've had it happen twice. So that does indicate to me a level of uh, let's just call it what it is, a level of corruption, uh, a level of control by the corporation of the agency that's supposed to be overseeing the agency that should never be there. Uh, that kind of communication is completely inappropriate. She should have, her identity should have been protected uh, and, and uh, FBI agents should have gone out and you know, talked to her and protected her, whatever she needed. And instead, uh, they they reveal her to uh, the wrongdoer in this case. So, and I've had, like I said, I've had that happen twice. That is new behavior by uh, government bureaucrats, and those are bad people. We need to find out who they are, and they need to be ejected. That's illegal behavior. It's probably criminal behavior. You know, a whistle. The whole purpose of the whistleblower. Um, status is just for that so it's i mean that's mind-blowing what's the stat so what's the current status of the case yeah sorry i got I, I went off on the beginning of no. the case uh, yeah the current status of the case and it's been a very interesting uh process so pfizer filed uh along with the other two companies we sued pfizer icon and ventavia so all three companies they're cooperating among themselves and they filed all filed for a motion to dismiss last year. We responded last uh, year. Um, and that has been pending before the judge uh, since August of 2022, this, you know, the motions and the responses. Meanwhile, we've had no discovery. We did ask for discovery. We wanted to dig in and, and get discovery as to what was going on. We'd like to see what communications the FDA had with Pfizer, obviously, who called. Uh, who called Pfizer, who, who blew the whistle on, on Brooke Jackson to, to Pfizer, uh, a bad kind of whistleblowing, and, and um, none of that happened. And then the judge had a hearing in February where we were invited down to uh, Beaumont, Texas, uh, to his courtroom, along with uh, a whole room full of Pfizer attorneys as well, and uh, we were arguing about, we argued the motion to dismiss. Now, the judge has ruled against Brooke and dismissed um, the case. We are working on some additional filings that have to be in by the end of this week because we are going to ask the judge for uh, an opportunity to address 
anything and everything he thought we could do to uh, bolster our complaints. So that's going, that'll be going in this week. But what's interesting is his order because his order lays bare some things that I think the American public needs to know. The, the first thing uh, that I think is a growing awareness is this is not an FDA or HHS or CDC or National Institutes of Health program. This is a military program by the Department of Defense. And the purpose of the program is in their contract is for military preparedness. So it's a military program. People need to understand that. And the judge makes this very clear in his ruling. And I think what's important about having it in a judicial ruling, so this is the benefit of even a losing uh, battle, a losing case. I don't think people realize, or, or uh, you know, if you tell them it's a DOD project, I don't think they understand the, the implications of that. I don't think they uh, get it. I, I don't think they'd be like, how is this a military project? And they don't believe you uh, right. as an attorney or a commentator or whatever. But now we have a judge, a federal judge, who's telling the world it was a Department of Defense program for military readiness, which apparently involves all the civilians in the United States. And it is a prototype project. So it's not even a finished product. It's a prototype product. So I think that also raises a question in people's mind. Well, should I take a prototype? You know, a prototype in Detroit, you know, they actually sculpt the cars out of clay and they, they'll have a prototype design that, you know, you can't get in there and start it. There is no in there. It's just a clay vehicle. I just, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a, I like cars. So, you know, you see them sculpt and figure out the shapes and test it in wind tunnels. That's a prototype. This is the same thing. This is a prototype. It is not a finished product. So again, DOD project, it's a prototype. And it's not even, you know, the use of the word vaccine is just, it's just astounding throughout this. And I'll probably sprinkle vaccine in, the, in my talk here a little bit as well, just because it's so ubiquitous in conversation. But this is not a vaccine. This is a, called a countermeasure. And, and the countermeasure, if you look at the law, is to respond to a biological attack. Yep. Biological, chemical, you know, nuclear attack. So this is a biological, you know, so I think implicit in what's happening here is that we are under biological attack. And I, I mean, this is the most generous way we can look at what our government is doing. The generous way is that somebody in the government said, we are under biological attack, which nobody's telling us that in the media, and we have to develop a countermeasure to a biological attack. That might be a, a more honest way to present this to the American people, but they haven't presented it that way. But then we look at the product itself, and because it's not a finished product, and because the trials, as we've alleged in Brooks' case, were fraudulent, uh, we don't have good data as to what this even does. Uh, and there's certainly not any excuse to inject this substance in the vast majority of Americans or, or even people worldwide. Then it just gets worse and worse. And I could go on and on, Scott. But, you know, 
what, what we know in the clinical trials is, uh, let's just talk about it real generally. I, I, you know, kind of the clinical trials by the numbers. There were 43,000 people roughly in the clinical trials scattered throughout the United States. If you split that in half, one side is the control arm, meaning they didn't get the shot. The other side is the, the uh, testing arm that got the shot. Great. If you look at the overall numbers, they, they had the same amount basically got COVID. I'm not talking about after they clean it or massage it. I'm talking just the raw numbers. About the same amounts of people got COVID in both arms. There was no demonstration. If you just look at the raw numbers, didn't look effective. And it, and it only looked effective at once they massaged it. Then additionally, keeping looking at the raw numbers, you see that actually more people died in the testing arm than the control arm. So that's a huge signal that normally you wanna see that there's some benefit in terms of what's called all-cause mortality. There was right. no benefit, there was a negative. It killed more people to be in the treatment arm than in the, in the placebo arm. So, and then boiling it down even further, well, we see pregnant women, we see losses of pregnancies. Um, you know, the, the early signals, we see nine pages of damaging reactions, nine pages, folks. And then the last thing is the number of people that was submitted in the final data analysis to the FDA, this entire emergency use authorization rested on only 170 people, not the 43,000. They boiled all that data down to 170 people. And then that's the decision. That decision to inject billions of people came from results and analysis of just 170 of the 43,000 people. To me, that is astounding. Now, let's talk about those 170. You know, of the 170, um, you have to hit, hit a threshold of 165. That was their threshold. They barely got over the threshold. But when you look at Brooks' site, that knocks out uh, three or four of them. So now they're only uh, one or two over that threshold. And that's just Brooks site. There's uh, over a hundred sites, uh, you know, around the world uh, to look at, and we're just getting started. So the Argentine site to me is uh, very curious what's going on down there. The chief researcher is a guy named Fernando Pollock. I can't for the life of me find his medical license. I, if he hears this, uh, if he hears your show, I'd like him to send me a copy of his medical license because when you have a clinical trial director, they're supposed to have a medical license. And we see that he's not licensed in the United States uh, from everything I've seen. And I, I asked uh, some Argentine uh, friends to get me his medical license down there and they can't find it. So I'm wondering if that whole clinical trial in Argentina is proper. And then we know from uh, a gentleman down there, Augusto Rue, who I've been in touch with, that there were deaths in the clinical trial, that he, Augusto himself was an injury in that Argentine uh, clinical trial that was, went unreported. He's terribly injured. So, and, he, and Augusto is a very smart man. He's an attorney in Argentina, so he's digging. Uh, and he's trying to help us figure out what happened down there. And then the, the trial down there, was took place on a military base. And so if we, and the Argentine data, which should have been 10% of those 170, 
there were about 4,000 people in that Argentine trial. Should have been 10% of the 170, ended up actually being uh, like 40 people, way over 10%. So that's a heavily weighted trial site where we can't get information on the clinical director. We can't, we, we know it was on a military base. Uh, we know they didn't report injuries and deaths. So it's a very, very, very suspicious site. And um, you see where I'm getting at. So now you take the 40 people out of there, you're way below any statistically significant threshold number to, to make any decision. It doesn't, it doesn't even matter. You cannot decide, you're, you're below the number necessary to decide, FDA. And, and that's, that's something that we are gonna bring up uh, this week with the court as well. So I hope that helps you understand um, a, a little bit about that case. Well, it, it's uh, that's the the most fantastic, complete answer I could have ever expected. You know, when I saw it, I, I have the original complaint, uh, the motions to dismiss. I put it all on Grace's website because I could hardly, you know, when I saw the words that this was a prototype from an other authority agreement with the Department of Defense, that's like, I can hardly believe this. You can't unsee that. And it was so so um, important to me in my own personal research as to what's going on. I put it on Grace's website. So now given that we have we have certain groups of people who know what are going on. So we certainly have whistleblowers. And then we have, you know, so in the category of the hospital murder lane that I'm in, you have doctors and nurses. We also have other people who know what are going on, but you know, very few people are standing. So what do you, what would you encourage whistleblowers to do? What do you encourage people who see this to do? Should they quit their jobs? What should the, the people that are seeing this on the ground level do? Well, I, I you know, I, I do want to say one last thing about the government itself. Our government has patriots in the government. I, I do want people, because I'm, I am very, very critical of government. But I do want people to realize we do have patriots at every level of government as well. Um, it, they, they're not uh, they're not prevailing, uh, but they're there, and we're going to need them because I do think we need to rebuild our institutions at, at every level. Uh, so, and we need people who know how it should function. I, I'll give you a name: David Gortler, who used to work for the FDA commissioner, has been fantastic, and he knows what's wrong in that agency. And he was fired the day uh, Biden was inaugurated, by the way. Uh, but David Gortler is is somebody who I you know who who has taken a real hit and a sacrifice over his stance, and and he was uh, blocked from actually seeing some of the Pfizer documents uh, while he was at the FDA. By the way, <laughs> which is astounding. It tells you how much power yeah. that company has. But I mean, what should people do? And I, so many of the people out there, because we we work with. Um, you know, we, we, we've sued a number of companies and hospitals, and I know how many, uh, literally hundreds of thousands of people, uh, you know, these are not heralded uh, people. We're not heralding them as heroes. We don't even know who they are, most of us probably. But these are heroes. Hundreds of thousands of people walked away. They've walked away because of their disgust at the hospital protocols. They walked away from jobs, understanding that mandates have no place in, in our society uh, this way. Um, so 
you know, there are, there are literally hundreds of thousands of people who did very heroic things um, throughout this, uh, throughout this pandemic, uh, plandemic process, I guess. I would say, and I, and I have thought about this a little bit, it's come up, uh, you know, at this point, the, the pharma companies are so bad, they know that their products are killing tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people, killing them. Um, whether it's the remdesivir, whether it's the shots, whether it's, um, whether it's the opioids. Um, so if you're working for a pharma company, I think at this point, and I know you've got families and you've got great incomes, but you need to think about walking away. This is, we have, we have, we are at a stage of immorality in corporations and hospitals and even educational uh, institutions, but it is time to walk away from, from institutions that are behaving in this immoral way. The second thing that we need to do then, and, and people are already working on it, is we need to set up our own hospitals, educational institutions, and even frankly, we need to set up our own sort of shadow regulators so that we uh, can explore what's going on with, uh, you know, with hospitals, with uh, pharma companies, with education. So we need we need to understand it, and we're going to have to have people that are uh, expert in those areas to work in groups to help us understand what's going going on because we need to be begin to rebuild a country that's uh, returns to its founding principles. I mean, that I really am. I'm, I, I sound like an extremist, but I, I think we're in such an extreme point now that it is going to, it's going to all need to be uh, rebuilt. I think that is, that is right on you know, the extreme position that we are in, unfortunately, I don't know what percentage it is, but it's substantially less than 50% of the people know this. I, I, you know, from what I see, maybe 30% of the people understand and believe what you just said. And, you know, thank God I'm in that category. And, you know, that's why I'm doing this full time. I want to get this word out. And, you know, we're trying to break into the, the regular media now so that we can you know get more people awake to what's happening you know the group that is is the uh you said institutions who are operating in immoral ways and i want to call out one that you didn't call out because it's near and dear to me it is by far and away the most shocking institution that i have found that's involved with immoral ways and that's the church and you know what's going on is romans 13 is interpreted incorrectly by most Christian pastors. So I'm just going to read it. It says everyone, Romans 13, 1 says, everyone must submit himself to governing authorities. So they take that as a universal principle. Most of the Christian pastors, and you know, back in World War II, the Christian pastor, pastors and the Jewish leaders led the Jews to the death camps by not standing when they needed to stand. Now is the time. So I want to um, share an example of how to stand. You know, so when authorities call evil good and good evil, that is not the time that we're supposed to submit ourselves to governing authorities. We submit ourselves to governing authorities when 
they are implementing the laws and principles on, in what God calls true. And, you know, the other scripture I want to just reference is James 4.17. And it says specifically, therefore, to him that that knows what is good and doesn't do it to him is sin. So when we know what's good and we bow down, you know, so we knew, you know, the masks are no good, the closing of churches, the closing of businesses, taking the jab, this stuff is evil. It is. And so when we do this and we bow down to the governing authorities, it's sin. And I'm going to have Don play this. What this is, I'll just set this clip up. This is a man, this is a deputy who lost his job. He works in Oregon and he lost his job because he would not on a provision that said that he had to respect the LGBTQ community. He, you know, it's, it, it's part of a condition of his employment. They were making him sign that. He would not do it. He lost his job over that. So uh, I'm going to comment on that after that and then come back to questions for you, Warner. So Don's going to play this. About, it's about a minute clip right now. The first sentence, I'm fine with. In fact, so the first, the second comment doesn't finish the sentence. The policy of the Douglas County Corrections Division is to ensure the respectful, courteous, and professional treatment of transgender adults in custody, AIC, adults in custody, new name for inmates, in case you wonder when you hear that. Now, I don't even affirm that there's such a thing, like you just heard, as transgender. Folks who identify as transgender, of course, I've always been courteous and respectful. I've never had a complaint lodged against me for my treatment of anybody from the LGBTQ community. Um, it's never been an issue. And I don't have a problem with that statement. And if they'd put a period there, it'd have been a good sentence. But it's a comma. And then it says, as well as respect the sexual orientation or gender identity of any person in custody. You can't respect that which God says is sin. So you can see this man stood up for literally a comma because you know he had no problem treating people respectfully but to respect a position that sin he would not do that and you know so he lost a good paying job over that position but that's where we are at you know when you look at the doctors and nurses who participated in Grace's death and literally 1.2 million other Americans and so you frame that so 1.2 million Americans lost their life with a COVID diagnosis in a hospital in the last 39 months and we are number one on the planet in that category number two is India India only has 531,000 deaths and their population is four times that of the United States so what's going on you know Warner laid this out perfectly with the Brooke Jackson case these doctors and nurses and a whole bunch of other nefarious individuals are being encouraged to follow protocols when they know these protocols will kill people. I've interviewed nurse Aaron and nurse Kate, and they have told me many stories that are significantly worse than graces. So what these medical professionals are doing is literally sin. So, you know, it's, it should be easy Warner to get justice against people who sin against you. But why isn't why are there hardly any cases? You know, Grace's case is unique for a, for a, several reasons. But one of the main reasons is there's no other cases. So why can't people file cases? What's going on? How have they precluded us from even filing? 
Well, I mean, obviously they have protections under the PREP Act and you have to look at the material. Uh, you have to look at each hospital record uh, very carefully to figure out what can be done. Um, and, and I do, you know, I mean, we've obviously looked at many uh, files uh, here and, and, you know, there is often something that can be done I mean, there's so many problems here because, you know, I remember, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to uh, criticize my profession a little bit. You know, when in, in 2020, I had a debate at our bar association opposed to lockdowns. And right after the debate, I got some very nasty comments and emails from other lawyers. Uh, that and in fact, you know, one person said he never wanted to talk to me again. I've always been a cordial member of my bar association. I've been in, you know, I was a city councilman. I, I know people throughout this community. I was shocked at the vehemence uh, of people and and how deeply ignorant they were of of what was going on at that time. But what that what that told me, and, and and we actually did a poll. Only about a third of the bar association, you know, was okay with my position at that time. This is fall of 2020. Um, it's only about a third of the bar association, and, and it may have gotten worse after that. I don't know. Um, I did. I I was really taken aback by that because lawyers are supposed to, you know, respect constitutional rights. I thought these were obvious constitutional violations, and and to me also, lawyers normally you know, these are obvious injuries. There are so many cases out there that need to be brought. And I feel like, you know, there are, and, and uh, there are very, there, there, there are too few of us in my profession as a lawyer who are willing to take a minute and look at the medical records and see what went wrong in that medical record. Uh, and whether there is a way around the PREP Act immunities in any particular person's situation. You know, so there's a whole level of, of reviewing uh, that isn't happening at the scale that it needs to happen. I mean, we're not talking, you know, your normal, you know, car accidents uh, where you, we, we, you know, we lose in this country, I think about 25, 30,000 people a year, you know, in car accidents. This is, how many times is that? you know, five, it's 50 times bigger, a million people. It's, it's 50 times bigger. I mean, I, I hate to say this, but I'm going to talk about it from a business standpoint, from a business standpoint, all law, you know, law firms are small businesses. Most of them, we have a, we have a pool of potential cases that's 50 times bigger than car accident deaths. You know, why, why not look at, you know, I would urge lawyers to take a minute and look, there's actually a business opportunity here. And I really don't care what motivates people. Obviously, if greed will motivate them, I want to get them motivated and get them going. So, you know, I think, I think our profession has been very lacking. It is awakening a little bit. I, I think, you know, I had a conference that I helped sponsor uh, with Steve Kirsch's organization, VSRF, Vaccine Safety Research Foundation. And, um, you know, we had uh, we had 250 people show up at the conference, most of them lawyers, about 200 lawyers. And I think right now um, and we have an ongoing conversation that has uh, continued both before and after the conference, you know, just in a chat group I have with lawyers. And we're now up to 190 lawyers in that chat group. So help is, it, you know, so help is 
they are standing up their awakening. And, we're, and what I was trying to do with that conference specifically was to provide some training, some advice, some encouragement, you know, from some of the best lawyers in this COVID litigation fight. So we had some great speakers. Um, some of that's going to be available here momentarily I, within the next few days because we're working on cleaning up the video from that site. So it should be available. I'll let you know when that's available, Scott. But, you know, I'm trying to do, I am trying to move my profession and push it in a direction that, you know, is necessary uh, for our country uh, to recover. And it's necessary to help all the families that have been hurt uh, recover. And it's necessary to hold those who were responsible for these killings uh, uh, accountable. So those, and, and on top of that, lawyers out there, I think we can figure out a way to, you know, actually get you paid in that process and make it, you know, and, 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 and it'll affect your bottom line, hopefully in a good way. And, and I can tell you what else. I mean, one of the other things, we have so many wonderful doctors that, that we have stepped up, that, that have stepped up and, and they are helping us for reduced costs uh, you know, to bring these lawsuits. These doctors are very committed uh, and have been very helpful to us and many other lawyers. They've gone above and beyond, you know, the Pierre Corys, Peter McCullough, Paul Merrick. I, I don't, I don't, shoot, I don't even want to do my list because I, you know, uh, uh, Harvey Reich, uh, you know, from Yale, uh, David Gortler. I mean, on and on and on. All these experts have been so helpful. Uh, and, and I'm sorry to those that I forgot to mention, I have a long, long list of experts that have really stood up and fought. And uh, well, that, I, I, I concur with that. You know, just since Grace's lawsuit was filed on April 11th, I've had people reaching out to me, doctors and, and saying that, you know, I'm glad to be an expert. I won't even charge you. You know, so I just have put their names in the file because, you know, we've got things lined up at this point. But, you know, it's it. Uh, I don't want to lose focus. You know, people want... People with good hearts want to help. There's no question about that. Uh, you know, the the conference you had, you know, you and I talked briefly after that conference. And I mean, you came away very encouraged that that uh, your peers are interested in fighting, which, you know, then so then it's you know, how do you how do you get them organized? And, you know, you're doing the chat now. It sounds like that's going in the right direction, which I, I think it's I think it's important. You know, I, I am concerned. I want to share a couple of documents because I'm concerned about the morality piece of this. And the reason is, is because morality produces ethics and the spirit of collectivism has really infiltrated every system in our country. And, and I think the, you know, you're in the judicial system and I think this has influenced the judicial system, but I want to ask that specific question after I go through these couple of documents. So the question, Warner, you can process this is, what is the, the influence of the current state of morality on legal cases? So I'm gonna first show, Don, I'm gonna have you bring up the palliative care of Wisconsin document. All right, so what this document shows, so I'm gonna just hit a couple of high points. So if you look at the first section, it says causes of morbidity and death and Down syndrome. So the title of this document is, it's from the Palliative Care Network of Wisconsin. It says Palliative Care for Patients with Down Syndrome. And this is written by two MDs. This is a training document. 
and I'm going to give you the source of this training document as a second document. This is literally a training document for medical professionals. So they introduced this idea first with listing 30, 40 problems that Down syndrome people have. So they have sleep apnea, dental issues, uh, chronic constipation, um, hip dislocation, blah, 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 blah. So what they're doing here with that introduction is setting up for the transition. So what they're saying without saying it is that these people with Down syndrome are a problem and they're a problem for their family. So then they go into the introduction to their, their goal. And it says specifically, the lifelong toll on families is high. Part of a robust plan of care includes acknowledgement of this toll by healthcare workers. So I'm going to come back to this document. So this, where this is, is under the physiological issues. And it says under bullet number one that, you know, the lifelong toll on families is high and the healthcare workers have to acknowledge this. So these Down syndrome people, they're really saying the families don't want them. So I'm going to show you what the lifelong toll through a video of having grace in our life is. So Don, I'm gonna have you play the Chewy clip of Grace waking up mom. So Grace did this as a, she she videoed herself. Mom is, my wife Cindy's sleeping. Grace puts on the Chewy mask to wake her up. This is the toll this beautiful girl had on our life, this lifelong toll. So go ahead, Don. You better wake up, mom. You know, who will scare you? out of that your chair. I'm ready for go to bed. Mask. Yeah, that's by far and away the thing I miss most about Grace is her sense of humor. But the reason I bring bring this up is the lifelong toll on our family was blessing. She made me a better man. So there's no lifelong toll. But what they did, you can go back to that same document then, Don. They want to get to the point of the conclusion of the training document. So this is bullet number four under uh Physiosocial issues, it says, whenever possible, decision makers for people with Down syndrome should be encouraged to use substituted judgment. That's the medical professional's judgment to make key palliative care decisions. All efforts should be made to determine the preferences of the patient. However, because of lifelong cognitive impairment, the views of the person with Down syndrome may not be known. So think that through. I know what the view of every single person with Down syndrome on the planet is. They want to live. So where does this foolishness come from? I'm going to show you. So on March 23rd of 2010, Obamacare was enacted into law. Obamacare codifies the spirit of collectivism, and it does it extremely well. 
in this section, Obamacare is 974 pages long. What is up on the screen right now is page 141, section 1553. And my brother accuses me, he said, Scott, whenever you talk, you always say, you can't make this up. Well, this is one of those, you can't make this up. This says that individuals, the doctors or the institutions, the hospitals refusing to participate in assisted suicide, euthanasia or mercy killings may not be discriminated against by the government. I mean, think this through. So they're telling us they want to kill us by assisted suicide, euthanasia and mercy killing. But if you have a conscience and you stand up against that killing, grace was taken out by a euthanasia agenda. And if the doctors have a conscience and stand up against it, they can't be discriminated against. Well, what did they show us during COVID? The few doctors that did stand up, they lost their licenses. So, I mean, so this is this is literally the why I bring up that, you know, the morality of our country, I think it influences everything. And I'm curious, Warner, your perspective on the influence on legal cases. Well, I, I mean, this is such a tough, it's such a tough thing to recognize um, that, you know, we, we have, uh, we have systems in place that seem at this point designed to be a war on what I think they would term the weak, um, right. you know, the elderly, the disabled, uh, you know, there's all of these uh, and, and we've just seen it from this entire, it's almost as if the disease itself was designed to take out the Medicare population. Um, and then, you know, and then you come into the hospital and the drugs that are used are designed to, you know, take out, uh, you know, just take people out. Um, you know, I, it really, we're, we're at, we, it, this really is a spiritual situation in so many ways. And, and it's like, you know, it seems like this was designed, all of this was designed, you know, that, you know, you no longer decide for yourself or uh, in conjunction with your family. Uh, we have these so-called now, I'm going to say so-called professionals who are going to be in the decision-making, uh, you know, decision-making about our lives and deaths. And they're encouraged, obviously, to ignore the wishes of the patients and the families. And Correct. to supersede that, so I, you know, it, it almost gets to me. It, it, it gets. It's like it gets to sort of a fundamental question. You know, why are we here? You know, they're. You know, it's like they're deciding that we're here only to be uh, of use uh, to uh, corporations or to government or whatever. You know, we're here in our own right, whoever we happen to be. And, and in whatever state we happen to be in. I mean, we're here to, you know, I read something this week. It's funny that you bring this up because I read something this week a philosopher was saying, you know, that we don't really need to answer that question. We're here to see the stars and the moon and, and to just be here. It doesn't, there doesn't have to be anything further than that. And, and I thought that was, an, that was just an interesting thing. You know, yeah, we, we need to just be you know, just like a tree is, uh, you know, the, the earth is, we just are at whatever state we're in. Um, and, and we shouldn't be always looking for utility and, a, you know, uh, and usefulness of a human being. That's not about that. It's just about we're here, we exist and, you know, by God's grace. 
and and that uh, it's so it's it 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 really just simplified it. I this has sort of been a theme in my head all week is, you know, don't let's let's get a little less harsh with each other. Let's let's not look at each other mechanistically, because it's not we are not a mechanistic being. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but those are just well, some I mean, thoughts I've had. I'm sure people listening can understand that Warner gets it. You know, he he understands the fight. He understands how big this is. He understands uh, what we're up against, the urgency. Uh, he's awake. And it is um, interesting to uh, see an attorney who's awake. I, I uh, get together uh, for breakfast with the business attorney that I had for years. He retired now. Um, and he's waking up. So we we get together we get together every three months only because after I sit with him for an hour and I start downloading what I've been learning he can't take anymore so then he just has to he has to go decompress for a while uh, so it is it's refreshing to to know you and that you get this um, I'm gonna have Don bring up page four of our authenticated complaint because what I, I have some questions for you Warner and you know, I want you to just comment about you know, Grace's case being used as a model um, and any other comments that you want to make regarding our complaint. And, you know, as um, as this thing proceeds, I mean, the, the, the defendants were all served notice yesterday. So, I mean, it's a long process that, you know, I don't don't put a lot of faith in that process, but it's a long process and we're committed to it. But can can people use what we filed as a model for other cases? Oh, can they use it? Oh, no. I mean, yeah. the important. Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, the importance of bringing the fight is uh, it's it just there's multiple, multiple reasons. First of all, uh, you know, the, the complaint does serve as a model. I mean, what we do in the law, I mean, this sounds like a bad word, but it's not. Uh, you know, we copy. Uh, we plagiarize. I mean, that's what we do. We're 90 percent plagiarism, you know. Uh, you know, 10% inspiration and, and other other things. But no, we plagiarize we, because the law is built on, it's built case by case. Every case is a brick and you're building your, you're, you're constructing uh, your legal system with the cases. And, and so we need models, we need things to copy from. Uh, and so the, the work that goes into a case like yours, building this, is very very useful to other attorneys to look at so obviously for wisconsin i mean that's a no-brainer uh, but it is also important even in other states because you can look at it from another state and you look for comparative um you know comparative statutes uh comparative cases and you can construct within your uh you know each state's a little different so you can construct it within your state's setup so uh, then additionally, I, I mean, a case is important as well, especially um, it's whether you win or lose, it's important. If you lose the case, then that provides a feedback loop to the attorney community. Why did, why did uh, this case lose? If you win the case, that may trigger, uh, you know, the greed factor, uh, which I'm not opposed to, uh, that, that may tell these other attorneys, hey, jump in, water's fine, you can make money. <laughs> and uh, I mean, whatever it is, let's get this moving. So, uh, you know, 
but you can't, like I said, even my Highland Tavern guy, I don't know whether I'm going to win that at the Ohio Supreme Court or not. We lost all the way up. Uh, and, um, you know, so it's, it's instructive and you, you learn from the losses as well. In fact, sometimes people say you learn more from your losses than your wins, uh, because it's more painful and you really look at it. Um, but, but so every single case is important because it helps us carve out that pathway. The win encourages other attorneys, the losses at least tell us, Hey, you better watch out for this stumbling block over here. Uh, you better add this uh, type of fact or this this issue to your your pleading, your complaint. Yeah, the consistent things that I would think are going to be in every complaint that follows this one, you know, obviously there's there's medical negligence, medical malpractice, uh, the medical battery. So I mean, that says medical battery, so people understand that. I mean, that is the the informed consent lack of informed consent right Right. so you know that's an important piece because you know what i have learned in now that i understand this at a different level you know having gone through the document myself and and you know working through this with the team you know i get this at a, a lot different level you know when you go into a hospital setting you're kind of encouraged to give up your right to informed consent uh, because you trust the white coat and, you know, you just don't, you know, then they they sometimes give you information after the fact and, you know, you just perceive that they're the experts and, you know, that is that is not right. Their code of ethics require them to give you informed consent and, you know, they have really um, created a license to kill. So I, um, I just have a couple more questions, Warner. One is... Uh, I, I want to emphasize something. I want to emphasize something. And I just, I am, the informed consent is really critical. And, and I, you know, the, 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 we have seen such horrific violations of informed consent at every level of hospital treatment in every case that we are reviewing. Uh, and, and I think, you know, I think informed consent, um, you know, I think it's a uh, very, good area to litigate. There's a long history of how patients should be treated. And these doctors have violated their patients' rights. And, you know, we really need to make an example of that um, and, and make sure that informed consent is brought back to the forefront as one of the most important issues right behind the term do no harm. So do no harm and inform your patient. Those are critical uh, issues that I think have been lost, uh, clearly lost in, in the last several years. I, I think that's right on. Well, now that you, you went on that, I just, you know, I, I want to tell everybody, I mean, Grace, Grace is not here because of lack of informed consent, uh, period. There's no question in my mind. If I would have known what they were doing at every step of the way. I mean, we would have stopped it. I mean, why would we approve a, you know, a DNR? Why would we approve Presidex, lorazepam, and morphine in a 29-minute window? I mean, no one would do that. That's insane. You know, that would only happen if Grace was in hospice care on in her last half hour of life. So I, I think that's that's right on. So you know, at, at so now a related question I have since you brought that up is as 
we go through a process of discovery and we really get into the into the nitty-gritty on on this case you know does this case and other cases that are going to presumably follow does that naturally lend to the criminal component that the da's office or whatever would would pursue criminal charges because the the cases are so egregious that they raise to that level Yes, let me uh, from a from a legal standpoint, um, you know, as as a lawyer, when I'm doing a civil case, I I can't use the the criminal side as leverage in any way in that case. I, I have to stay away from that. Uh, there is a real separation there, but nevertheless, it's evidence, and and you as the client. Uh, you know, it's your evidence. You as the citizen, it's your evidence. Uh, and you can do whatever you want with the evidence that you've generated. And if there's a prosecutor that's interested in uh, viewing the evidence, evaluating the evidence, they can certainly do it. The, the other thing about the criminal law is generally the statutes of limitations to bringing a, a criminal complaint are longer than the civil statutes of limitations. So you usually have a you know, one, two, three year civil statute of limitations that you got to bring these complaints in and get moving or you lose your right to do it. Civil or I'm sorry, criminal uh, statutes of limitations can be much longer. I mean, you know, murder, there is no statute of limitations, for example. You know, they're still prosecuting uh, civil rights murders from the 1960s. Uh, you know, so there, there is the chance of vindication in the criminal courts, if the evidence supports that. Okay. Well, thanks for thanks for that. That clarifies that in my mind. Um, a technical question I have for you, for people listening, is you know obviously people would want to get their hospital records, but what about autopsies? You know, if they have loved ones dying in hospitals, should they get an autopsy? Is that important if there's going to end up? having a, an eventual case? I, I would, uh, if, if you are thinking that you wanna bring a case, uh, you know, on behalf of your loved one for whatever type of death, uh, I, I would generally recommend getting an autopsy, you know, at least preserve some tissue samples and things that, you know, may need to be looked at later. Makes sense. So the last question I have for you, Warner, before I close is, you know, what do you see on the horizon now that you, you know, we've got 39 months into this, you've got multiple cases going, uh, you just got done with the um, training in March with Steve Kirsch's team. You know, what, what do you see as far as what's coming and how can the legal system be part of getting our country back? You know, it's interesting. All of the people who've uh, sacrificed and, and borne the pain of what we've been through so far, um, you know, I want to just declare victory for them because, you know, it's, it's a moral and a spiritual victory that puts you into a new place when you've fought and taken the hit and, and uh, you know, decided to stand on your moral basis. That's a victory. Every and I, I think those victories are going to take place one person at a time, and at some point there'll be a, a threshold that will hit. 
uh, a point, a tipping point. But we can have these victories one person at a time. And let's just recognize and celebrate each other for those. Wow. Well, that's, uh, that's very well said. I'm going to um, close up and then I'm going to come back to you for the final word, Warner. And okay. uh, you can have as much time as you want. But, you know, in, in closing this up, you know, my perspective before Grace died was I was a lazy Christian chasing the American dream. And I still, unfortunately, now that I'm in the fight, I can see that clear. And I see that most people are like that. I was on a podcast last week. Uh, they wanted me on to discuss Grace's lawsuit. It had 82,000 viewers in 24 hours, and yet only 10 signed up to follow the story. Uh, so, Don, you can just bring in what we're what we did for Grace's story now, the new website picture. So, this is the we have GraceShara.com, and the purpose of this website is to you can sign up to follow the case with your name and email address. Not very complicated. It takes less than a minute. And yet, uh, after 82,000 people saw that interview, only 10 signed up. And you know, we're trying to create a database of people so that we can we can tap that database as the story gets traction, and we're you know we can have some calls for action. And yet it doesn't seem like anybody wants to, and I don't mean anybody, obviously, but you know, we're responsible in God's economy to do something with our one talent. We can all do something. We can resist evil. And just a simple thing, uh, uh, Jessica is involved with monitoring Grace's Facebook page and that website. I'm too old to be doing that stuff. But this lady wrote, I'm not going to give her name, but she's in the medical profession. She wrote, Jessica, I know you don't know me, but I have been researching what happened to your sister. I'm so sorry for your family's loss. My mom told me about what happened. Let me, let me tell you, keep fighting and get that justice. I think about this often as I work in healthcare, how I can advocate for my patients. Your sister's story gives me the voice to speak up for my patients. So here's a lady who's gotten woken up because of Grace's death, and she's taking a stand and advocating the right way for her patients in the hospital setting, you know, that's doing something with your one talents. So I'm very impressed with this, this type of thing. Not everybody can do what I'm doing. I mean, I'm in this full time. I was able to turn my business over to my guys so I can do this full time. I'm not expecting that, but I think all of us at least have to do one thing. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's my, um, I, I really love what Warner said about, you know, let's declare victory. I think that's right. Um, if we're serious about this, the first thing is uh, repentance. And, you know, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I, I have never been more inspired to and humbled to do God's work. And what I, my wife came up with this one, and I'll come back to you with the final word, Warner. Um, I'm going to just share Genesis 50, 20, what Don brings up this messed with the wrong girl picture. So my wife came up with this messed with the wrong girl. Uh, so this is one of our, our um, slides that we have, not a slide, but it's a, when we have done some protest events and things. So my wife came up with this and it's really based on Genesis 50, 20, which says you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. And my little stinker is saving lots of lives. Two weeks ago, I got a 
email from a man in Appleton, Wisconsin, and Warner, you know, we've got 18 billboards up. And he said, Scott, you know, what you're doing with these billboards, it made me look into it and it saved my son's life. He's 31 years old. He's disabled. He went into the hospital. Of course, they tested him. Same hospital Grace was killed at. They tested him. Of course, he's positive for COVID. You know, that's almost an automatic. And then they wouldn't let this man who wrote me or his wife come in with him. And he then the doctor called and said, we're going to put him on remdesivir. And they drove to the hospital and just got him out. Anyway, he wrote me two weeks ago thanking me and said, you know, my son is alive because of what that you're speaking out. So all of us, we can all do one thing. We can all at least do one thing towards this end that Warner's speaking about today. So Warner, thanks for coming on and you have the final word. Well, I'll just, I'm going to segue kind of off of what, where we're going with this. I mean, I think one of the things that I've, uh, you know, I've observed, you know, I've been very active all my life and, you know, in terms of my community and trying to do things and trying to bring change. You know, one of the things that I've observed, which goes exactly with what you're saying is, you know, whatever someone does and whenever someone does right, some of us can do it on a, a bigger scale. Some of us can only do it on a very small scale. But it is scale independent in terms of what happens with what you do when you do something ethical and right. And, you know, there's a chaos theory talks about the butterfly effect. It just means that a butterfly flapping its wings across the world may result in a hurricane somewhere else. And I truly yeah. believe in the butterfly effect in terms of what we do as ethical and moral people. So. It may be the smallest thing that that uh, lifts someone else up in your day, uh, and and then that person goes on to do something incredible. Uh, so I, I don't, you know, I don't want to, you know, we can't put too much expectation. You know, we can. I do all that I can, but that's all I can do. And and we all have different limitations uh, there. And I, I sometimes I don't recognize my own limitations, but you know. But the reality is, just do all you can because that is all you can do. And then and and don't worry about what scale you're operating on. You know, it could be you know just helping out your neighbor. We we just don't know. It, it could be a very simple action that has this butterfly effect that triggers the cascade of change that you know, I, I think that we will see uh, come, but we have no idea what case or what person or what act is going to trigger that final change into a, a better country and a better world. But I guarantee you it's coming. We just don't know exactly when, and we don't know what that last, uh, that last act is going to be. It could be very small. Warner, I really, really like that closing. And it reminds, you know, Grace had that butterfly effect on everybody she met. And thanks, thanks for coming on today. This was a fantastic interview. I sure appreciate you as a friend, Warner. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Further details, we return you now to your regularly scheduled program.